So an article from the Christian Post dated March 7, 2017, carried this headline, Man Trying to Sell His Jesus Toast on eBay for $25,000. According to the article, George Maley from Wyndham, New York, was trying to sell a piece of buttered toast that he claimed bears the face of Jesus. I think I have a picture of it here. Probably can't really make that out, but supposedly kind of up in the right-hand corner there is the face of Jesus. Maley stated that at the time he was having a particularly rough day. So when he saw the image in the toast, he got the shock of his life. It was an answer to a lot of questions I had. Even if it was just a brief image, it's still a sign, and it points in the right direction. Now, if $25,000 seems like a ridiculous price for Jesus' face and toast, well, in 2004, a woman sold a 10-year-old grilled cheese sandwich that supposedly carried the face of the Virgin Mary for $28,000. So there was some precedent to sell it for this much. Now, researchers at the University of Toronto put out a study in 2014 that gives some insight into the brain functions that cause us to actually see faces in objects. This is what lead researcher Professor Kang Lee says. It's common for people to see non-existent features because human brains are uniquely wired to recognize faces, so that even when there's only a slight suggestion of facial features, the brain automatically interprets it as a face. So our brains are wired to find and recognize facial patterns in things, and so we will see faces in things that are actually objectively not a face. So this is kind of an interesting aspect of our brain and facial recognition and pattern recognition. But it's not just the hardware of our brains that causes us to see faces in things. Researchers also found that people can be led to see different images, such as faces or words or letters, depending on what they expect to see, which in turn activates specific parts of the brain that processes such images. Instead of the phrase, seeing is believing, the results suggest that believing is seeing. In other words, expectations and beliefs will color the pattern recognition of our brains. Our brains will see what we expect to see, our ex- and our expectations can be influenced. So here's an example, and maybe you've had this happen to you before. You've been in a crowd, and, and you were meeting a friend somewhere in that crowd, and so you're expecting your friend to show up, and so as you're scanning the crowd looking for your friend, you start to see people who look like your friend, and you're like, oh, that's them. Oh, no, that's not. Oh, oh there they are. No, oh, that's not them. Oh, oh, there they are. No, that's not them. Oh, finally, you see them. So you start to see your friend in the crowd because you expect your friend to be there, and so anyone who looks remotely like them, you think, oh, there they are. Contrast that with maybe just being in a crowd of people and you don't expect to meet a friend there. Maybe someone that you see will happen to sort of like, oh, that that person looks like my friend. But it's not going to be rapid fire all throughout the crowd. Why? Because you don't expect your friend to see, you don't expect to see your friend there. And so your brain is not looking for that person. So the, the, the interesting question in the guy who had buttered toast with Jesus' face on it is not that he saw a face in the toast. That's just kind of normal brain pattern recognition. The more interesting question is, is why did he think that was Jesus' face? Why not his Uncle Frank's face? What, what, what expectation and belief caused him to say, oh, that's Jesus in my toast? Now, a silly example. I know, Absolutely. 
But sometimes those extreme examples can kind of bring into focus some significant realities for us. What beliefs and expectations are affecting what you see? Well, what beliefs and expectations affect how you see and where you see Jesus? What what beliefs and expectations do you have of what he looks like? Now, I'm not talking about physical features. I'm talking about his character, who Jesus is, his teaching, and his mission, and what it means to follow him. How do you see Jesus? And what is shaping your expectations and beliefs? What is shaping what you see? We may not see Jesus in toast. I hope you don't see Jesus in toast. (laughs) But I guarantee you will see him in all sorts of places. Your, Your beliefs and your expectations will cause you to see Jesus in a particular way and cause you to interpret what it means to follow him in a particular way. And if your beliefs and expectations are not being shaped by truth, you're going to see him in places he's not. You're going to have expectations and beliefs about him that are not true. And that is going to impact how you live. That is going to impact what you think it means to follow Jesus, whether you do so or not. And our passage this morning from the Gospel of Mark concerns itself with seeing Jesus clearly and truly. And really, this theme is brought into focus when Jesus heals a blind man, here's what we read in 8, 22 through 25. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So he can start to see, but it's not clear yet. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Like this is a really unique situation. This is the only time Jesus sort of partially heals a guy and then fully heals a guy. Well, what's happening here? Did, did Jesus not have quite enough healing power going on? Did he have that kind of juice going? No. This is actually a live illustration. This is sort of a living parable, if you will, where Jesus is going to use an object lesson of healing this guy to illustrate a spiritual point. So he's going to use this guy's physical sight to make a point about spiritual sight. He's going to illustrate that as this guy only received partial sight at first and then fully saw things clearly, oftentimes, spiritually speaking, we only see a part of Jesus, or we do not see the full picture clearly. And so it is important that we see Jesus clearly, and the way that we do that is we need to have a full, complete picture of who he is and the purpose of his mission. We must be careful of having half-truths at best and false beliefs and false expectations at worst. And so the two episodes that follow this event, this healing concern seeing Jesus clearly. So Peter's confession and the transfiguration emphasize the truth that to clearly see Jesus, we have to have a view of both his glory and his power and his authority, but also his suffering. We must see the greatness and truth of who Jesus is as well as see his purpose and mission. If we fail to see both of those things, we will not see Jesus clearly. And so here's what I want to do. I want to walk through both of these sort of episodes. 
And I want to look at how in both of them, there's an emphasis both on the glory and greatness of who Jesus is, but also an emphasis on his suffering and the, the primacy of his suffering. And then I want to look at the teaching Jesus gives in between these two events, which helps us to understand what we're to make of the fact that Jesus is a suffering Savior. So let's first look at these two events and reflect on how the fact they hold up both Jesus' glory and his suffering. So all throughout the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, a question has been hanging in the air. Who is Jesus? It's a question that people have been asking, the scribes and Pharisees have been asking, the disciples have been asking. Everybody's like, who is this guy? Like after seeing them, seeing Jesus heal the sick and cast out demons and calm a storm and multiply bread and raise a little girl from the dead, this question is, who is this guy? And so as Jesus and his disciples are walking, he poses a question to them. You see, we... we we see if, you know, as readers of the gospel, and we remember back in the prologue, we get an answer to this question. Like right up front, Mark tells us Jesus is the son of God, and this is who he is. But for the disciples actually living in this moment, this was a live question for them. They're, they're figuring this out in real time. And so Jesus asking them this question is a real life sort of moment for them. It's a processing out loud moment for them. And so Jesus is going to force the issue. He's going to force this question. And he asks them, meaning his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so Jesus first asks about others. He's like, hey, who who do all those other people out there say that I am? What's the word on the street about me? What are people's theories? What's trending on Twitter and Facebook about me? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets, So of all the the thoughts and theories swirling around about who Jesus is, this is the best that they come up with. You're some other dude brought back from the dead. Some guy from the past brought back to life to, to do this sort of ministry thing. Like that's the best human theories that all the leaders and the crowds could come up with. What an incredibly human and flawed thing to see. Like they they completely miss it in their own understanding. And the people had a category for a great man of the past coming back, but they didn't have a category for Jesus being the Messiah. Notice what's, what's not listed there. You're the, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. You're the Christ. Talk about bad theological beliefs and expectations blinding you. In and of ourselves, Look, our beliefs and our expectations will blind us to the, who, to the truth of who Jesus is. Left to ourselves, we will not see Jesus clearly. Jesus then asks his disciples directly, but who do you say that I am? Okay, that's the theory out there on the street. Guys, who do you say that I am? The people think I'm a resurrected prophet. What do you think? In light of all that you have seen and heard, all the time that we have spent together, who do you say that I am? Like This is a significant rubber-meets-the-road moment for the disciples. They have spent an incredible amount of time with Jesus and seen him do some amazing things. And so the answer that comes out of their mouth is really going to be telling. This is an important moment. And Jesus, or excuse me, Peter, who is probably acting as a spokesman for the group, 
steps forward and answers, you are the Christ. You're not a resurrected prophet of the past. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one of God. Peter nails it. He got it. He, he and the disciples saw it. Jesus was the promised Savior. He's the chosen king who would come and save God's people. Huge moment. And the disciples nail it. Peter's confession is true. That they actually can see that Jesus is the Christ. However, what happens next shows that for all the truth that they can see, they still do not see clearly. For, for all the, the sense that they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, their understanding and expectation of what the Messiah is and who he would be is flawed. In verses 31 through 32, we read this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. So Jesus, right after Peter's confession, you're the Christ, he steps forward, all right, let me fill out what that means for you, for me. Let me fill out what it means that I am the Christ. And he's not going to use parables. He's not going to tell them a story. He's just direct and plain. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again after three days. And the word must here is very important. Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected, must be killed, and must rise after three days. His suffering and death, it's not an accident he wants his disciples to know, look, this is not me falling victim to the political powers of Rome. This is not an accident of history. This is not me losing. This is part of the plan of God. This has been the plan of God for the Messiah from the beginning, that he would suffer and die and be raised again. Now, this is a significant moment in the, the narrative because this is the first time Jesus talks about his suffering. This is the first time he starts telling his disciples he's going to die. So up until this point, man, the disciples have seen Jesus do some incredible things. And in all of that, they got a glimpse. They got it. He's the Messiah. Now Jesus says, okay, now that you see that, let me tell you something. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. He's filling this out for them at the moment when they're starting to see things. Now that, now that Jesus has established his identity, the, the, the sort of turns a page in the story. He's going to start heading towards Jerusalem and heading towards his crucifixion. This is a turning point in the narrative. And so Jesus starts laying out the fullness of his mission to the disciples. And Peter is having none of it. Peter is having none of it. He pulls Jesus aside and starts rebuking him. This means giving him strong correction. He's correcting Jesus. Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're going to overthrow Rome and reestablish the kingdom. Stop talking about suffering and dying. You're embarrassing yourself. You're freaking everybody out. This isn't what God's word says. This isn't what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's rebuking and correcting Jesus. See, Peter's expectation of the Christ is flawed. He, he thinks Jesus is going to be this powerful political ruler who's going to overthrow Rome and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. He expects victory and power and authority, not suffering, not rejection, not death. And in his flawed beliefs, he rebukes Jesus. Just think about this for a second. If you hung out with a dude that healed the sick, 
raise the dead, cast out demons, shut down a storm, would you rebuke them? Probably not. I mean, Peter has got some guts here. He saw what Jesus did, and yet he's going to correct him. Talk about a lack of self-awareness. Talk about being blind. Talk about how expectations and false beliefs can harden your heart and cause you to do some really stupid things. Jesus recognizes the consequences of Peter's actions and such a flawed beliefs about him and the effect that could have on the disciples. And so he pushes back hard. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Get behind me, as in, you follow me. Jesus is putting Peter in his place. Peter, you don't tell me how to carry out my mission. Peter, you don't set the agenda. Peter, you follow me. You follow my agenda. You follow my mission and my purpose and my plan. I don't submit to you. You don't disciple me. You submit to me, and I disciple you. He's pushing back hard here. In the mind of Peter, salvation comes through the means of man. Political power and greatness and cultural strength and military victory. But God's way is not our way. His mind is not our mind. The way of salvation is a path of humility and weakness and suffering and even death. And indeed, even without Christ's suffering, without his rejection, without his death, there is no salvation. If Jesus does not do these things, then our salvation is null and void. We are hopeless. This is why Jesus is coming so strong against Peter, because Peter's statement is a threat to the very plan and purpose of God. Why does Jesus call Peter Satan? <laughs> That's a strong term. I hope none of you, when you know, someone's, you're getting in a fight with your spouse or a friend, you're like, get behind me, Satan. No, don't ever do that. He does this because Jesus can see through the statements Peter is making, and behind the words of Peter, he sees the devil. If you remember back in chapter 1, right after this, the father makes this glorious statement, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, this confession of who Jesus is. Jesus is taken into the wilderness to be tempted. And again, right after this glorious confession that Peter makes about, hey, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, Peter can see that Satan is trying to use Peter to tempt him away from his mission. I mean, think about this. Jesus has to suffer and die, and here's Peter telling him, no, man, you don't have to do any of that. You don't have to do any of that. Power, authority, overthrow him. And so Jesus can hear the tempting words of Satan through the voice of Peter. And so he's shutting that down because he knows it is an affront to the plan of his father. Now, to kind of encapsulate all that has just happened in this conversation, like Peter and the disciples got and were getting that Jesus is the Christ. However, they were missing. They they saw that Jesus was the king, the savior, the one who has authority and power, the one who would defeat evil and establish the kingdom of God. They saw that, but they weren't seeing things clearly. They did not understand that the path of salvation, that the way that victory was going to come, the way that the kingdom of God was going to be established was through suffering and rejection and death. See, their beliefs and their expectations led them to see the glory of Jesus, so to speak, 
They didn't see his suffering. They did not see Jesus clearly. And so we're going to come back to the teaching that follows right after this in verses 34 through 38. But I want to jump ahead and look at this next event that also upholds the glory and suffering of Jesus together. This is in chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, what is commonly called the transfiguration of Jesus. So nearly a week after Peter's confession and his rebuke, this is what we read. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I mean, I guess that makes sense. You see Jesus transfigured Elijah and Moses. Hey, can we build you a house? Don't quite follow Peter, but again, he's confused. He doesn't really know what to say, but he's trying to say something. He's trying to be helpful. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him, but Jesus only. Now, this passage, oh, there's so much in this passage. We could do a whole sermon just on this. But this passage has a ton of Old Testament imagery a ton of parallels between the Old Testament and Jesus in order to make a point about the authority and glory of Christ. And so I just want to highlight a couple of these things just to kind of give you an idea of what's happening here. So first, going up on a mountain. This is reflective of Moses, how Moses and others would go up on a mountain to meet with God. And so the fact that Jesus is taking them up on the mountain, it's setting their expectations. Hey, we're going to go meet with God in a very profound way. Then the the imagery of the cloud, that it says a cloud overshadowed them. So cloud imagery is all over the place in the Old Testament. It's a physical manifestation of the presence of the Spirit of God. So in Exodus 19, when God descends on the mountain, it says that the the mountain is enveloped in a cloud. It's the cloud that leads Israel through the wilderness. This is the Spirit of God taking on a physical manifestation, leading the people. And so the fact that there's a cloud enveloping says, hey, the Spirit of God is present right there with them. This is a significant moment. They're meeting, they're in the presence of God. Then the transfiguration of Jesus also parallels an event in the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, when Moses goes up to meet God on the mountain, he says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, hey, look, I'm going to allow you to see my backside because if you look fully in my face, you'll die. And so Moses is hidden in this cleft of the rock and God passes by him and he's able to see God as he's passing. And the glory of the Lord is so strong that the afterglow affects Moses' face. And so when he goes down off the mountain, his face is bright and he has to cover it because the people can't look at Moses. So there's this afterglow, this shining of the glory of the Lord that Moses carries with him. But with Jesus, that glow is not an afterglow, it's coming from himself. Jesus is the source of the glory. Jesus is the shining one. He's the one that is radiant and beautiful and white and pure and holy. And so this this picture, this image immediately points you, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God the Son. He's divine. He's not just another man. He's divine. And then Elijah and Moses, their presence is important because Elijah and Moses represented the law and the prophets. 
Moses was the one given the law. His authority loomed large in the Old Testament. The people of Israel followed the teaching of Moses. Elijah represented the prophets. He was one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament. And so the law and prophets, God's word, here's Jesus talking to the two representatives. And what is the voice in the cloud? What does God the Father say? This is my beloved son. Listen to who? Him. Why was this important for Peter and James and John? Hey, all that he's telling you, listen to him. He has authority. Moses and Elijah, the law and prophets, they testify to him. He is the authority. What he says is true. It's about him. It points to him. So there's this important moment of Jesus establishing his authority, his glory and his authority. Man, it's this beautiful moment where the Trinity is present. You have the Son revealing his glory. You have the Spirit's presence in the cloud, and you hear the voice of God the Father. Imagine being Peter, James, and John caught up in that moment. No wonder they didn't know what to say. Because who knows what to say in the presence of God like that? As they're descending down the mountain, after this incredible encounter and revelation of Jesus, conversation ensues. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead, what it might mean? Here we go again. Jesus says, hey, all that you saw, I want you to remember that. Don't talk about it until I rise from the dead. And they're like, what What is he talking about? They still didn't get it. They still were missing it. They still didn't quite get glory and suffering. And so they kind of try to change the subject and start talking about Elijah. Hey, we just saw Elijah. Well, why does it say that Elijah must come first? And this is a reference to Malachi, the prophet Malachi, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says that Elijah will come before the Messiah. And Jesus is like, yeah, Elijah did come. And and since you're so interested, what does it say about the Son of Man that, that he should suffer many things? And yeah, Elijah did come, and they did whatever they wanted to him, just as it was written. So so Jesus is saying, hey, you want to talk about Elijah? And Elijah did come. This is a reference to John the Baptist. And guess what happened to him? He was killed. He suffered. Like, look, following me is a path of suffering. Following me is a path of persecution. Following me is a path of difficulty. You guys want to talk about Elijah, but let let me remind you that even Elijah speaks to the suffering that the Messiah was going to experience. And so Jesus is clarifying. He's holding up his glory, but he's also clarifying, don't miss the fact that I am going to suffer. So let's draw some implications here. Let's, Let's drive the point home here and do some reflection. What are your expectations? How how do you see Jesus? And what's shaping your expectations and beliefs? What do you think it means to follow him? And what's shaping those expectations and beliefs? These are important questions because how you see Jesus will certainly impact your understanding of what it means to follow him. And so I want to go back to the teaching that's in between these two events. After Jesus finishes rebuking Peter, he gathers not only his disciples, but the crowd. And he's like, okay, hey, let me make something clear here. 
And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Is your expectation self-denial? Is your expectation taking up your cross and losing your life? Jesus makes it very clear. If you and I are going to follow him, we are going to have to walk a path of denial, of suffering, and of sacrifice. Jesus wants to be very clear. Hey, look at all the glory. Look at the healing and the casting out demons and the calming the storm and multiplying the bread and raising from the dead. Like, look at all that glory. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the King. Yes, I am the Savior who's going to establish God's kingdom. Look at all of that. But let's be clear about something. Following me means denial, suffering, and sacrifice. And so I want us to just ask, what's shaping our expectations? Is it the statement of Jesus here, or are we seeing Jesus through a different lens? Are we being shaped to see Jesus by our culture? Like, here's a, here's a couple lenses that our culture sort of imports on us that, church, we need to be aware of. You and I need to be aware of. I think the first, and this in some ways is unique to our culture in the United States, is seeing Jesus in cultural and political power. Like, like we see Jesus, like that's what we need to do. What it means to follow Jesus is go grab cultural and political power. Now, look, whatever blessing we have had in this country, that's good. I'm not saying we need to like reject that and not care about that. But let's be clear about something. The path of Jesus is not to run after cultural and political power. That the path that Jesus calls us to is not accomplished through cultural and political power. We have to be careful that we don't import our culture into our understanding and our expectations of what it means to follow Jesus. To whatever degree we've been blessed in this country, let us not forget, that's not our hope. Those things aren't our pursuits. Holding those things as our expectation and belief will cause us to see Jesus not clearly. If our expectation is comfort and status, political power and cultural esteem, then we won't see Jesus clearly. I mean, because consider how radical Jesus' statement is in his context. Take up your cross you know what Jesus is saying? Like, the cross in Roman culture was the most shameful way you could die. Like, it was reserved for the worst of the worst. Like, you had to do something terrible to be crucified. So for Jesus to say, identify with the cross, he's saying, identify with the shame. Identify with the ridicule. Identify with the lies and slander that are going to be thrown your way because Jesus took up his cross. He was going to be executed as a common criminal. And to identify with someone who had been executed as a common criminal was to invite shame, was to invite ridicule. Church, let us not forget that we follow a homeless Jewish carpenter 
who was strung up on a Roman cross as a criminal. There's nothing beautiful and Instagram-worthy about that. And so if we think that the path of following Jesus is about glory and it's about comfort and it's about being seen as relevant and cool in our culture, we're missing it. We're missing it. We're not seeing Jesus clearly. What happens when the shame of identifying with Jesus hits? Like we're seeing this more and more in our culture, right? More and more to identify with biblical truth, biblical values, biblical ethics is going to get you labeled a bigot, going to get you labeled a judgmental, going to get, you're going to get labeled even criminal now in some ways. And again, I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but let's be honest about what's happening around us. It was uh, interesting to see a couple, I don't know, this has probably been a month or two ago, there was an actor uh, who I rather like, I'm not going to say his name, but I rather like, who has identified in, in really in some great ways as a Christian. And he's a very popular actor and, and some of his professions of faith and he's, he's put on social media and, and talked about in public forums has, has been pretty cool. But then there was another actor that went after him because the church that he attended held to biblical and traditional sexual ethics. And this actor was calling him out on it. How could you identify with such a church? And to watch this guy back away because he couldn't handle the shame of being identified with Christ. Now, I'm not judging his soul, but it was unfortunate because that's the direction our culture is going. Anytime you take a stand for truth, anytime you're identified, you could be the most loving person, most sacrificial person, most winsome person when you talk about Jesus. But if you identify with the harder parts, immediately you're tagged. What are you going to do in those moments? What do we do in those moments? Are we willing to lean in and identify with the shame? Are we willing to identify with sort of the, the cultural labels that people throw at us? Or are we going to back away? Are we going to say, now that, 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 that level of denial is too much? Like, following Jesus, I want this to be comfortable for me. I want this to, to, to make me look good. I want people to know that I'm loving and I serve and I support people. I'm not judgmental. What will you do with the shame that comes from following Christ? And more than that, is that your expectation? Is that your expectation? We could also drill down personally. Like when you see Jesus... Do you see him through the lens of your own needs and your own wants? That, that, that Jesus and his mission and his plan and his purpose are to support you and the things that you want? Do you see Jesus as a means to an end, another product to help you be more happy? And look, this is, this is how Jesus is marketed so often. You're unhappy? Try Jesus. You want a better marriage? Try Jesus. You want to be a better parent? Try Jesus. You want to be a better leader, a better businessman? Try Jesus. And we tack Jesus on to our self-help methods. And, and all that ends up doing is baptizing our own wants and desires. Look, Jesus wants is after your joy. Make no doubt about it. Jesus is after your joy. 
Jesus wants you to experience life in him, but he doesn't do it by baptizing your own selfish wants and desires. He's going to challenge them. He calls you to die to your selfishness, die to your sin, die to your rebellion, and find life in him. Like the path to life is to lose yours. The path to life is to deny and die, not just sort of feed yourself with all the the things that you want. And so what's your expectation? What's my expectation? Like if, if all we're seeing Jesus through is the lens of our own comforts and our own satisfaction and our own, I don't know, chasing after the American dream, for lack of a better way to put it, then we're not seeing Jesus clearly. We're missing what it means to follow him. Like Jesus didn't die on a cross so you and I could just chase after temporary pleasures and support an empire and a nation that's going to pass and fade away in history. Like Jesus didn't die on a cross so that you and I could chase after temporal things, things that don't last and don't satisfy. Jesus came that we would have life and abundantly Jesus came to for, so that we could be forgiven of our sin and our rebellion, and Jesus came to set us free so that we could experience true life. So church, what is your expectation? Well, what, what is my expectation of what it means to follow Christ? How are we seeing Jesus? Do we see that the path of following Christ is a path of denial and of suffering and sacrifice? Do we recognize that the path of following Christ is a path of repentance? Like to deny ourselves is to repent. And it means that as the Lord reveals more and more of our hearts, we're willing to say, yes, Jesus, I agree, that is sin. And we confess it and we repent and return from it. And look, this is far different than the authenticity that our culture is promoting. Like our culture is, yeah, put your junk out there. Be authentic. But you know what that is? That's just putting up a wall. Like, I'll share my junk, but don't touch it. Don't do anything with it. I'm just kind of putting it up there so you can just see me and I'm going to be real. But don't you dare ask me to repent. Don't you dare speak truth and challenge and let the gospel break into that. Church, our denial, our repentance is far different. We die to those things. We let Jesus transform us. We confess to God and to one another so that we might be set free. Church, self-denial, dying is hard. It's painful. Death is painful. I had a a wise counselor once tell me as I was in the midst of of struggling through letting go of some stuff, he says, kind of feels like death, right? I said, yeah. He's like, and death is painful, right? Yes. So if it's hard, if it's wrestle, if if you're you're experiencing that that, that sin that doesn't want to let go, and it feels like you're dying, that's a good sign. That's a sign that the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, transforming you. It's a sign that your expectations are being shaped in the right way. It's a fight to see Jesus more clearly. And so church, I I hold this up because there's so much in our culture that screams comfort at us. I hold this up because there's so much in our culture that wants to baptize Jesus into the American dream and American exceptionalism, and it completely guts what Christ has called us to. 
I want us to be aware of the temptation in our own hearts. I want us to be aware of the ways that we can settle into comfort and not even be aware of it. But at the same time, I want to encourage you because you are some of the most sacrificial, giving Christians I have ever met. Many of you in this room, wow, you're ready to repent of your sin. You're ready to die to sin and die to self. And I want to affirm you in that. I want to encourage you guys in that. Like God's spirit is at work in some powerful and profound ways. And let's let him keep working. Let's let him keep shaping how we see Christ. Let's not let the culture lull us to sleep, but let's keep fighting and keep dying and keep sacrificing. Because on the other end of this is glory. Like Jesus talks about suffering. He talks about dying. And you can imagine for the disciples, this is a scary thing. We're following this guy and he's telling us he's going to be killed by Rome. And so it's right after this teaching, it's right after giving him these hard truths and saying, to follow me means you have to deny yourself and lay down your life. It's when he reveals his glory to them. See, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to encourage them, to show them, hey, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much the suffering comes crashing in, no matter what you see them do to me, how they mock me and shame me and beat me and kill me, remember who I am. I am the glorious one. I am God incarnate. And I am going to rise again. And so church, all of our dying self, all of the suffering and sacrifice that you and I experience, on the other end of that is life and life eternal and victory. That's why we also hold up the glory and power and authority of Christ. He calls us into death. He calls us into dying. But he does it with the confidence that the glorious one is with us. And the glorious one is going to win in the end. And so we need not fear. We need not despair. We need not stiff arm and resist all that God has for us and the hard parts of it. Because there's something beautiful on the other end of that. And so church... Let's uphold both the glory and the power and the authority of Christ and let that cause us with confidence walk a life of denial and sacrifice and even suffering so that others may know the glory of Christ in this city so that we may serve and love and proclaim the gospel. Because all of this is so that God and Christ may be glorified and the disciples may be made. Amen?